Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Murthy Law Firm teleconference. We're delighted and honored to have you. Happy New Year to all of you. On today's panel, I have another amazing team in attorney Adam Rosen and Janelle Ochlu. We're going to discuss PERM overview and recent adjudication trends with respect to the PERM processing, which is part of the labor certification where we process with the Department of Labor. For those who are not familiar with my signature trademark voice, this is Sheila Murthy, founder and president of the Murthy Law Firm. And uh, let's get started. So what is PERM? What does it involve? What is labor certification? Well, as most of you know, the labor certification is the first part of the three-stage process towards filing for permanent residence for an employee by an employer. It requires an employer sponsoring the employee and in the green card process, getting a clearance from the Department of Labor is the critical stage in the process. The Immigration and Nationality Act requires that an employer first demonstrate that the sponsorship of the foreign national will not adversely affect the wages and the working conditions of U.S. workers. Usually that's U.S. citizens or U.S. green card holders, but more broadly defined as U.S. workers. How does this process work? As again, most of you as employers already know, the employer is required to verify that the offered wage is at least equal to the Department of Labor prevailing wage for that particular position in that geographic area. Second, the employer must recruit workers in the manner specified in the law and regulations to test the availability of available and qualified workers to ensure that they are available, willing, and qualified U.S. workers for that particular position who are willing to work in that area. And finally, the employer must file a Form 9089 with the Department of Labor detailing the information about the offered position, the job duties, the salary, the credentials, the minimum criteria, and the employer's efforts to locate a qualified person to work in that position. Remember, when your employee is being processed and is working with you on the H-1B or an L-1, that employee is simply working temporarily on that H-1 or L-1 position. The green card position is the permanent future position based on the concept of a future job offer. So with that sort of broad sweeping overview, we're going to get into a little bit more details with this fabulous, brilliant panel that I have here. And Adam, let's get started with you. Can you discuss some of the recent trends regarding prevailing wage requirements for the PERM process? And by the way, what the heck does PERM even stand for, Adam? PERM stands for Program Electronic Review Management. So it is commonly referred to by its um, acronym of PERM, but the term PERM is used interchangeably with labor certification, with the form name, which is the ETA 9089. It all means the same thing, applying to the Department of Labor for approval, as you said, that the employment of this foreign worker will not hurt the wages and working conditions of U.S. workers. Now, one of the um, areas where we're constantly watching trends and trying to report them to the public as well as to our clients is on the issue of prevailing wages. The One of the first steps in the labor certification in the PERM process is getting a prevailing wage determination. 
In these days, since January of 2010, prevailing wage determination is determined as issued by the Department of Labor's very own National Prevailing Wage Center in Washington, D.C. And there is a separate form that has to be filled out that's available from the Department of Labor's website where you fill out to uh, provide to Department of Labor the position requirements, the job duties, if there's any special requirements, anybody being supervised by this particular worker. And so there are actually four kinds of, uh, four wage levels um, that can be assigned to a particular job, and the assignment of the wage level will be based primarily on the relation of the education and or experience that's being required by the employer to, um, to this, for this particular position, and the analyst at the National Prevailing Wage Center will look at what the normal range is assigned to a particular wage level, to a particular job, what's called the quote-unquote job zone for an occupation, and then will make its determination, which is issued on a, a separate page attached to the form. And so the, the shorthand way to keep them, the shorthand point to keep in mind is that the higher, are, that are, the higher your requirements are, the higher your prevailing wage will be. So for example, if for most IT positions, the Department of Labor data takes the position that the maximum of what is considered to be normal would be a bachelor's degree in two years of experience, and so a job requiring a bachelor's degree in five years would be considered to exceed what Department of Labor says is quote-unquote normal and will almost always be a level four, the highest, wa the highest wage level possible for an occupation. Aha, so whenever the employee says, I really, really need an EB-2, so can the employer, i.e. you guys, the company, please approve and grant me EB-2, keep in mind that you're going to end up having to promise a much higher salary, a much higher prevailing wage, because now you're saying that the minimum requirements are bachelor's in five or a master's in three or whatever, and that it is, requires generally maybe a higher level of work, supervision, responsibility, all of that. Right, and for and, and for for many IT positions, the an added component that raises the wage level is a requirement that has to be stated on the prevailing wage determination, and then in the ads, and then on the application itself, is that travel and relocation more than fifty percent of the time may be necessary, and that will add that will usually bump up the wage an additional level. Now, once you get to level four, there's nothing higher, but if there's any possibility for a particular job to be classified at something lower than level four, there's a pretty good chance that travel and relocation more than 50% of the time, where this is a roving job, you don't know where the job is going to be in the future, that is going to bump it up potentially all the way up to four. Okay, mm -hmm. thank you, Adam. You know, Janelle, there's a lot of questions and issues about the alternate wage surveys. Mm -hmm because obviously the employer may say, hey, I don't agree with the Department right. of Labor's ridiculously, outrageously high salary. That isn't even nobody in the industry for that particular job is you know, willing to pay that, especially as the economy has sort of been going up and down and sort of, you know, and sort of having its problems mm -hmm. with the salary and the prevailing okay. wages having been changed. So what are the different criteria that's involved and how can an employer try to 
address some of the Department of Labor's concerns. Sure, sure, understood. Well, basically, you're right, Sheila. If uh, the employer uh, finds that the 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 wage that's being determined uh, by Department of Labor is really not reflecting what the wages actually are in their area or for the particular jobs uh, that they have for the employees, it's possible to uh, do an alternative wage survey. Now, keep in mind, though, that this wage survey needs to be accepted by Department of Labor. So, uh, first of all, the uh, wage survey needs to um, be from recently collected data. It should be uh, data that's been collected within the last 24 months, so within the last two years. You can't be talking about wages from three or four years ago. These have to be current wages. Uh, the other thing is, if the alternative wage survey is uh, published uh, material, it needs to be the most current edition of that publication. Also, um, it um, and obviously published within uh, the last 25 months, so it needs to be something that's updated regularly. So that uh, was 24 and this is 25? Yes, okay. yes, yes, right. So data collected uh, within 24 months and then uh, published within the last 25 months. Uh, some additional criteria for an alternative wage survey is that the job should be an adequate match. So look at the particular position you have in your company that uh, you're filing for for the employee and try to find the closest, the closest match in that wage survey. Um, and also that wage data should be collected from um, uh, uh, across uh, from industries across the board, not just uh, in one industry. A cross section of industries. Exactly, cross section of industries. And then what we're looking for is the actual arithmetic mean, meaning the weighted average of um, uh, salaries, okay, uh, for the, that position in that geographic area. And if the uh, alternative wage survey actually doesn't have a weighted average, only then is it okay to use uh, the median. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's come back to you, Adam. What, what is the mechanics of using a private survey for the prevailing wage determination? Well, if you look on the prevailing wage determination form itself, there is a place where it asks for the wage data. And there is a, a, a box that allows you to type in the name of a survey. Uh, there is a pre-printed box that where you mark off if you're using the Department of Labor's OES wage survey. So there's a separate free text box that you use to fill in the name of the survey. And that's where you start. You have to put in that information there. And then you're going to go ahead and email the survey to the Department of Labor once you have your receipt number from ICERT on filing a prevailing wage request. And so in your, your communication to the Department of Labor with your ICERT receipt number, there's a, a set of information that you should make sure to have. You should have the full name of the survey, you should have the publication schedule uh, show that it's current, what, when, the previous, uh, when the previous version of the survey came out, when the next one is scheduled to come out. You need to be able to show when the data has been collected, and you need to provide a description of the job duties used in the survey for the particular occupation that you're seeking to compare your own particular job to. And you also need to be able to show the methodology that the survey used in collecting this data. Um, the Department of Labor does have the, the right under the regulation to, to review the methodology and to question the methodology. And then finally, you should uh, you need to include the list of the employer participants or the explanation of how this is cross-industry in nature. They want to get it as, as big a picture, as best a picture as possible of the particular survey to see how um, comparable it is to the OES wage survey that is the default wage data that everybody has to use. 
So if the Department of Labor does not agree, you do have one chance to rebut their position. They're finding that this doesn't work. And as far as processing times go for something like that, it's not much more than the standard processing times for prevailing wage determinations. So, so it should not take um, particularly long if you do get a decision from Department of Labor saying, no, we don't agree with this for a particular reason, to go back to them and say, well, you're incorrect because of A, B, or C, and, and then at that point go ahead and submit a new prevailing wage determination request, which might have to be based on the OES wage data. I see. Okay, okay. Uh, so, Janelle, what if one of us as an employer mm -hmm. disagrees with the Department of Labor's determination? Okay, sure. So basically, uh, you can file the request for reconsideration, okay, um, arguing uh, with uh, Department of Labor, arguing, I say rather, reasoning, showing why uh, uh, they, you believe it was an incorrect assignment. Um, be, uh, perhaps it could be because it wasn't uh, the correct uh, code. Maybe they didn't code it for the correct job, or for some reason you disagree with the wage level and you want to show why it should have been a different uh, wage level. You can do that. Um, so uh, you can appeal to you can appeal the prevailing wage determination directly to the uh, Department of Labor's certifying officer. But that is really going to take a lot longer. Um, and so what a lot of employers actually end up Take doing. longer, and is the outcome certain or uncertain? Uh, it's an uncertain outcome. Okay. It's an uncertain outcome. Uh -huh. So really, if, you know, time frame is any kind of concern with your case at all, uh, you're, as an employer, you might want to consider actually reducing the requirements. I see. Uh, so then the it comes position. back to that whole right. EB3 issue. Exactly. Because sometimes employers, as employers, we don't mind waiting a little longer if we thought it was pretty certain, but if it's going to be uncertain and long, that's going to be a no-brainer. Yeah. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. So I guess in summary, you know, it really as an employer, uh, the recommendation for us is to be consistent. We need to use real-world requirements. Every employee will come to us asking us as employers for an EB-2, mm -hmm. but the salary may, may make it prohibitively expensive for us as a company, as businesses, as employers. And the real requirements may not in the real world reflect that the job mm -hmm. truly requires it. You are trying to do a huge favor for an employee, but in the bargain, if it means you're going to have to pay a much higher salary, pay higher taxes, pay higher wages, when it's not even the reality of what you really need for that position, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So don't try to you know, bend over backwards and in the end kind of shoot ourselves in the foot as employers. Uh, as we often say, you can't permit the tail to wag the dog. Um, so the whole issue of prevailing wage for the labor certification um, and sort of it's a related but a different issue. A lot of times employers say, well, I'm already paying the person the prevailing wage for the H-1B, so obviously my prevailing wage for the green card shouldn't matter. It should be the exact same wage, right? And the answer is no. It may not be the same because remember, according to the Department of Labor, the H-1B prevailing wage on the LCA for an H-1B is quite different than what they perceive to be a future job down the road years from now for the green card. And so the wage that is paid for the green card often ends up being way higher because with the H-1B, the Department of Labor is not as stringent. And for the green card, the Department of Labor will raise it, and now the employer is required to have to pay a much higher labor certification salary for the green card. Uh, Adam, you want one, to say something? Well, one other point that I'll jump, mm -hmm. that I'd, I'd like to just throw out there is the fact that while 
there are some employers that will go and actually request a prevailing wage determination using the same form and actually submitting this request to the Department of Labor's National Prevailing Wage Center for a determination. Oftentimes, employers do not. Oftentimes, attorneys do not because you can make a judgment based on the what the position involves doing, what the requirements are, and looking at the various kinds of occupations. So the determination that you come to, there has to be a basis that you've made it on, that you have in your public access file, should the Department of Labor come and ask why do you have this particular wage level and occupation. But when the determination is made by the Department of Labor as opposed to by an employer themselves, that determination might come out differently. And so you, while you might be perfectly okay and with in what the law allows and requires for H-1B purposes, when a decision is made by the Department of Labor on the prevailing wage, that may very well come out differently than when that decision is made by an employer themselves. Exactly. Right, so you're talking about the prevailing wage versus the actual wage, that whole issue? No, I'm ta talking about the, the, well, the issue that when you're, when you're preparing an H-1B petition, you look at the OAS wage survey to determine what is the appropriate wage and what is the appropriate occupation. You, you're, you yourself are doing this and then filling that information into the LCA. You're not necessarily going to the Department of Labor with the ETA form mm -hmm. requesting a prevailing wage determination like you do with the PERM case right. and getting that determination issued by the Department of Labor. This, for your occupation, employer, this is, the this is the occupation you have to use and this is the wage level you have to use. So while uh, you might end up having a higher wage for your PERM case because you've actually gone and gotten a formal determination made by the U.S. Department of Labor, while with the H-1B you have selected a particular prevailing wage based on your, your assessment, understanding and your, your understanding right. of the requirements. Right. And also so basically, to, to clarify, with the H-1B, the employer has the flexibility that they can look at the OES and they can survey speak which level. And, 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 right, and kind of make the determination, Correct. whereas in the PERM labor certification context, the employer doesn't have the choice. It needs to be what comes down from Department of Labor. Correct. And then the two other points to remember are also that the OES prevailing wages are updated every year for the green card, while mm -hmm. in the H-1B they're generally valid for three full years at a time. So if you got it a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. you're like, well, I don't need to change it. That's true because it's valid for the entire three-year duration, whereas in the PERM it keeps getting increased. And the other thing is the determination for the green card is subject to the Department of Labor wage analyst discretion in terms of occup occupation and wage level assignment as opposed to what we just discussed which where there's a much higher level of discretion. Mm -hmm. So, Adam, let's get back to what are the trends, the recent trends in terms of recruitment uh, for Department of Labor for the PERM processing? Well, the first, and I think this is an ongoing trend, is the idea of real-world practice versus Department of Labor expectations. The Department of Labor has specific forms of recruitment that every employer that it wants to go through this PERM labor certification process has to be complied with, they have to do, and even though it might not be consistent with what an employer normally does, they still have to do it. So, for example, an employer might not normally do two Sunday, two Sunday ads um, in a newspaper of general circulation to try to find a particular position. The Department of Labor says it's required to do that. Then if you want a labor certification that will have a chance at being certified, then you do it. You have to do what the Department of Labor tells you to do. You can do more if you'd like, but at a minimum, you have to do what Department of Labor tells you to do. Otherwise, you don't meet the requirements and they won't approve it. Um, and that's something that's ongoing, and periodically there's some um, particular variation in which that, that comes up as an issue. Uh, now, the, the, other, um, the other recent trend is Department of Labor um, being – 
being particular, um, more so in audits that are issued on the labor certification case, on the perm case while it's pending, um, particularly in, with regards to the recruitment steps that are being taken. So how, and, and so that takes us to the question of how do you prepare your recruitment documentation? And the answer in general, uh, these days especially, is you want to over-document. There is never, it, it's never possible to have too little documentation. You, it's not poss never possible to have too much documentation. And unfortunately, with increasing frequency, it's um, more often possible to have not enough documentation. And first of all, you want to pick the correct newspaper. There are, um, there are websites that can list newspapers within a certain geographic area and also provide their circulation numbers. You can also contact the newspaper themselves. And to the find reason out. for this is that the law requires that the it law be a newspaper of general circulation. General circulation. And there are exceptions to that rule, which is why it's important to get an idea and to know, and sometimes even be able to have, have proof of that to show the area of general circulation, the geographic area that the newspaper actually covers. So I know there are some newspapers that might even have available a map showing in a particular state how far their newspaper covers and might be able to give you specific numbers. How often do they, you know, serve, how, how many people do they serve on a Sunday or during the week? And so these are documentation from the newspaper might be something that you'd want to get, particularly in an area where it might not seem that a particular newspaper is a newspaper of general circulation for an, an example area. that we often use is sometimes the Department of Labor is given a hard time for something like the Washington Times compared to the Washington Post. Exactly. And it's often used example in the Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. area because it's much less expensive for an employer to run an ad in the Washington Times, but the Washington Post has a mu is much, much more expensive, much wider circulation, and sometimes and it has a Sunday edition. Mm -hmm. So that makes a big difference. What about a professional journal, Adam? Um, and can it be online publications, or does it have to be print? For a professional journal, in, in lieu of one of the newspaper requirements, newspaper ads required, it must be in print. You cannot use it online. And also, the Department of Labor is restricting that, is placing restrictions stating that the professional journal to has to be only used in cases where the position requires an advanced degree and experience. And when you're using a professional journal, it would, it's important to make sure that it will actually be in a print form, not just online. And while you might sound crazed to the particular et journal, the, class, the classifies department, you need to make sure because the Department of Labor is not going to excuse a mistake made by the professional journal. They're going to lay the blame and the fault and the responsibility at the door of the party placing the ad. Which is, i.e., all of us as employers need to be extra careful. Exactly. So it's a very, very important criteria because most people think, uh, you know, professional journal is where you really get the real jobs and the top-notch candidates. But you know what? When you're in doubt and you're not sure, you're safer just going with the newspaper. It'll actually be helpful for the company in a funny way, uh, in a strange way. And that's because the Department of Labor doesn't care that the way to get more applicants is actually through an uh, pr proper online professional journal because they say, we don't need that. We don't want it. We don't agree with it. So even though in the real world it may actually help you, the Department of Labor says that's not good enough for the major publication unless it's one of the other 10 backup it, criteria. Right, and, and they're, they're very particular, especially now in the current economy for the past, past year or so. The, the, the position that they've taken regarding the advanced degree and experience be a requirement in order to use a professional journal is based on the language and the regulations that they've put out. And they're being more particular and more restrictive in how they interpret the rules regarding recruitment. And so while there might be a position, might be a basis for arguing contrary to what they're saying, it's always safer to 
follow what they've said because ultimately the goal here is to get a certified labor certification to help this particular worker in, in your company to get a green card for this worker and the the more difficult the more difficult the process becomes the the, the more you one makes an effort to try to take a position contrary to what Department of Labor says the less likely one can be assured of an approval okay thank you Adam now Janelle can mm -hmm. you go over the additional forms of recruitment for professional positions and what the employer needs to be aware of and we are very mindful that we always try to make our uh, teleconferences within 30 to 40 minutes so we're right on target we'll wrap up in the next five or ten minutes so we should be in great shape sure Sheila I'd be happy to uh, just go through this very quickly basically for the additional forms of recruitment for professional positions in addition to the newspaper ads which are for all perm cases you're gonna need the three additional forms of recruitment now for those you don't need every job duty you don't have to spell out every job duty every requirement but you do need to demonstrate a um, a nexus to the specific sponsored position. So a good rule of thumb is for the employers to generally follow the same guidelines as for the newspaper advertisements um, in terms of content. It's enough, you, you, it, it should be enough to make clear what position um, is being advertised for, okay? Uh, one of the additional forms of recruitment is um, a, uh, a employer referral program. So even with an employer referral program, you need to show how the employees were informed of that particular position. So it's not enough just to post, hey, we have this employee uh, referral program, but you need to be able to show that by notifying your, your employees of this referral program, they understood that this particular position was one of the options this position was being recruited for, okay? And also make sure that for those referral programs that you identify the incentive. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, another uh, uh, thing that we've seen with a uh, recent trend that we've seen with the additional forms of recruitment is uh, a particular Balka case which um, denied a private employer, uh, in private employer firm where the headhunter ad did not also mention the employer's name. Okay, so once again, not showing the connection to that particular uh, sponsored position. Um, and then also, we want employers to keep in mind that the DOL is generally quite unforgiving about typos um, on the advertisements as well as the notice of posting. So something as, uh, you know, leaving out an employer name or uh, location is fatal for a perm case. So the, these are very important things. And um, there are... Um, uh, basically more requirements in the ads and the notice of postings uh, than on the form, uh, basically putting in more requirements in the advertisements than you actually have on the form 9089. That's also fatal for a perm case. Um, and also, one more tip for the employers is that general ads uh, don't work. You need to be able to connect the ad to the specific job that's being offered. Aha, uh -huh. so when the employer says, I'm running a whole bunch of ads, I have 10, 15 mm -hmm. openings, I or need to do IT this. Positions. IT professionals oh, right. needed in various capacities mm -hmm. for various jobs, not good enough. They want more specificity in the ad and the language and to make sure all the I's are dotted. Exactly. These are crossed. Okay, so as uh, all of us as employers, for those of us who've done perm cases, and I know with the economy having been as it has been for the last couple of years, people were waiting, but in this year, this past year in 2010, and hopefully 2011, things will pick up. It does look like the, there's a little more hopeful signs. Uh, and so if you as companies that are hopefully doing well, that are seeing an upward trend, uh, will continue to hire, your top people will continue 
continue to run advertisements, we'll continue to uh, sponsor them for the green card because there is still a huge shortage. And one of the things that we keep pointing out because people say, well, the unemployment is high, it's at close to 10%, and as everybody knows, it's a known fact that Department of Labor, the unemployment is actually less than 5% for those with a college degree or higher. It's more than 15% for those who have not passed high school. And it's around 10 overall, but it's less than 5%. And remember, less than 7% is generally considered a 0% unemployment, according to the world's leading economists. So we really have close to 0%. And in the technology, science, technology, engineering, and math, really, in the science fields, there is a huge shortage, even today, even with the economy as it is. So don't lose faith. Don't lose hope. Continue to sponsor. We at the Murthy Law Firm are continuing to get huge numbers and percentages of approval of our PERM cases and of our green card cases. It is, yes, from what you've heard from our discussions with Adam and Janelle and myself today, PERM is a highly technical process. There are many nuances and details and many potential traps for all of us as employers that we need to be wary about. However, if you as an employer will approach the process from the positive and the right perspective, hopefully, and working with a top-notch law firm like the Murthy Law Firm, all of the details should fall into place. You need to really examine are your company's actual minimum requirements for this position accurate and reasonable and appropriate? And based on these requirements, can we as, an, as employers pay the prevailing wage to the individual as determined by the Department of Labor? And the second main question to ask ourselves is have we made a good faith effort to recruit for that specific position by following all of the Department of Labor's strict procedurals, procedures and process, procedural requirements, and can we fully document that in good faith for our recruitment? So if you follow all of these nuances, you dot your I's, you cross your T's, you work with a top-notch firm like us at the Murthy Law Firm, then you will be in great shape. And this year, 2011, will bring you much success, much good fortune, lots and lots of profits, and help you to retain your smartest and best technology and other workers as your organization continues to grow in 2011 and beyond. We at the Murthy Law Firm, from every single one of us here and our staff, we wish you, your staff, and your families a wonderful new year for 2011 and hope and look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you and have a great rest of the day and a fabulous week. Bye for now.